now, this is Box to Box Offside with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box Offside, our podcast where we talk to a person whose life has been lived through football either domestically or around the world. People who we watch or watched on the pitch or had our heart rates pumping as they describe moments in history. Those who wrote the prose and descriptions of iconic moments and the ones behind the scenes who set the stage for the stars on it. Now, it's been a little while since our last edition of Offside, but with just days to go till the Women's World Cup kicks off, what better time to reflect on the career of one of the people not only responsible for bringing the World Cup to Australia and New Zealand, but a force behind the very first Women's World Cup over 30 years ago, not to mention women's football in the Olympics. And I speak of none other than one of football's best-known administrators, Heather Reid. As a citation on Football Australia's Hall of Fame page reads, devoted four decades to football as a volunteer, player, coach and administrator. She was a foundation member of the ACT Women's Association in 1979 and, as I've already mentioned, an advocate for the establishment of the first Women's World Cup in 1991 and admission to the Olympic Games. A life member of the ACT Women's Sport Association, in 2000 she was awarded the Australian Sports Medal. Heather was CEO of what was the ACT Football Federation, then Capital Football, for 12 years from 2004 and general manager of Canberra United in the W League for nine seasons. She has a Bachelor of Arts graduate diploma in sport management and an honorary doctorate from the University of Canberra. Miss Heather Reid AM was elected to the Board of Football Australia in November 2018 and is a member of the Referees Committee and FIFA Women's World Cup 2023 bid committee. But with the highs of any career come the lows as well. We'll discuss all of that in a wide ranging reflection on her career with Heather. Heather, welcome to Box to Box. Thank you very much, Rob. Not at all. And we've got our, your good uh, uh, colleague, Michael, here as well. Hello, Heather. Great to have you on Box to Box Offside, which is a very important little uh, 50 minutes we're going to have talking about you in football. I can't believe that somebody has um, effectively been witness to the entire journey of the international game uh, of women's football in Australia. I did... Uh, catch the phrase that Heather was the custodian of the journey of women's football in Australia. So what a uh, hour we've got ahead of us, Rob, to talk about all the uh, the good things, the not so good things and the great things. Excellent. Well, Heather, well, why don't we go back to the beginning? So like so many people who played a role in the formation of football in this country, you're the daughter of Scottish immigrants. Uh, you were born in Goulburn in 1956, the first of the family to be born in this country. After your mum, dad, your older brother and sister left Edinburgh, uh, for your dad to work on the Snowy Mountains hydroelectric scheme. So you know, reading some of your background and your bio, you, you, you grew up in country New South Wales around a real diaspora of, of, uh, of international people um, from all over the world. And one, the one language that they commonly spoke back then was football, and that's how your passion began. Yes, that's right. I was uh, the daughter of some very courageous parents who came here at a young age with two young children from Scotland, as you said. Um, they moved to Goulburn because that's where my maternal grandmother was. Um, she'd come out earlier from uh, from Edinburgh. Uh, it was tough for mum and dad it, at the beginning. Um, my dad worked for the gas company until he actually got a job on the Snow Mountains hydroelectric scheme. And he worked in Cooma whilst mum and, mum and three children were still living in Goulburn. It was pretty tough for her. But life on the Snow Mountains scheme, when we all finally managed to get to Cooma and then to Cancove and, and Talbingo was an absolute uh, blessed upbringing from my point of view because we lived in and around what was basically the centre of multiculturalism in Australia during the, the 60s and the 70s. Um, you know, I had friends that uh, were Levisianus and Kropinski and Machevsky <laughs> and um, people from all sorts of uh, backgrounds, particularly in Europe, and of course, Scottish, Irish, English. Um, and it was whilst I was there in a little town nestled in the foothills of the Snowies called Talbingo that I first saw men from the workers' camp um, playing soccer. And it was one of the Irishmen who encouraged me to have a kick of the ball and, uh, and join in. I was only 13 or 14 at the time. And of course, soccer wasn't a sport for girls at school. I, I just recently dug out a yearbook from my school and saw the photograph of a soccer team that I didn't remember uh, existed, but it was all boys. Um, and I played hockey and I was thinking, if only I'd had the opportunity to jump in and join those 15, 16 year old boys, 
whether life would have been different for me or not. Um, but that childhood in the Snowy Mountains was such a diaspora of not only the people, but the culture that they brought, the food, the music, the lifestyle um, was something that I cherish every single day. Yeah, it's um, it's these memories that are seared onto our brains, so that that are sort of tattooed there, really, aren't they? That um, that uh, are formative in your mind and 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 are the foundation stones for for where you go. You were a handy player um, back in the day, and you, you did have opportunities, but uh, but you you really turned to to the administrative side um, pretty early in the piece, and uh, and and it sort of began in in Canberra in the nineteen seventies with the establishment of the ACT Women's Soccer Association. Talk to us about that, Heather. Well, I was working at the Australian National University in 78 when um, some women uh, started talking about forming a team to play in a lunchtime competition. It's called the Purple Shin competition. And uh, and we formed a team, we played in that, and then we formed the ANU Women's Club. And there was about 10 teams in 1978 playing under the auspice of what was then the ACT Soccer Federation and the Junior League. Um, and so I was secretary of the ANU club and enjoying this great new game that women had previously been excluded from in many regards. Um, and then in 1979, on the back of some fairly uh, interesting uh, developments for women. Um, we'd had 1974 was International Women's Year. We had Gough Whitlam in power. He'd set up the uh, a, a department for women. Um, there was a lot of emphasis on improving opportunities and the status of women in society. And football was just another site for the empowerment of women um, in society. And uh, just uh, recalling that it was in a geology lab in August 1979 where about 30 people met to discuss forming the ACT Women's Association because we felt we could do a better job running our own destiny, organising competitions, representative teams, etc. And so in 79, we established the ACT Women's Soccer Association and it continued um, in a fairly robust way um, for the next 25 years. Um, and I say the next 25 years because um, we'll probably talk about this later on the back of the Crawford Report and integration, amalgamation of men's and women's associations. Um, the Women's Association eventually did integrate with a broader uh, association that was ACT Soccer Federation, which became, became Capital Football. But, you know, in those early years, in those early years, we were still regarded as a bit of a, a laugh um, Kick and giggle is an expression that's often used to describe the women's game um, in the in the late seventies, early eighties. Uh, but we were dead serious about what we wanted. We wanted the same opportunities that men had. We wanted the same um, sense of belonging in the sport that men had. Um, we wanted to feel safe and comfortable in the environment in which we were playing. Um, and we grew the competition from ten teams to. I don't know, six, seven divisions of maybe eight teams in each division. Exciting thing that I think that started probably uh, in the late 80s was the development of girls soccer um, by three or four key people from different clubs um, who were keen on it, enabling girls from five years old to 12 years old to, to get involved in and, and play the game. And, and now I just look at, you know, the squillions of girls that are able to enjoy this game and think, Wow, you know that was never really contemplated um, back in the back in the eighties. Heather, um, let's go back to the nineteen eighties. So we're out of the seventies. So I get the from reading the information um, about uh, your career. I get the sense that in the nineteen eighties things start to get serious, a little bit serious for women's football. Obviously, when we think of 1980s in Australian sport, we think of Australia winning the America's Cup. We think of the Commonwealth Games up in Brisbane. Um, we think about um, the emergence of football in the Olympic Games. So there's two sort of key areas I want to talk to you about, ask you questions about the 1980s. The first one is the Australian Women's Soccer Association, and you um, begin to get involved there. In fact, you end up as the National Executive Director uh, towards uh, the latter part of the 1980s. But can you just talk to us about the Australian Women's Soccer Association? And also, when you talk about that, I know that millennials will find this extremely hard to believe because they're looking at the Matildas now, integrated, women's football integrated into Football Australia, very much a single focus on growing the game for men and women. 
can you explain just how it was so separate back in those days? It, um, the men's game was the men's game and the women's game was the women's game and, and you really didn't have any interaction with each other administratively. Well, the, the Australian Women's Soccer Association was formed in 1974 when five states got together to play in a national championship. And um, I think uh, there were separate women's associations at state level and the formation of the separate national association came about because they were frustrated and hamstrung by lack of support from the existing federations um, that didn't really believe that women should play the game. And we're on the back of a 50-year ban on women's participation in, in England and in Europe and elsewhere around the country from 1921 to the early 70s. So my theory is that a lot of the migrants who came to Australia in the in the 50s and 60s came with the notion that women can't play soccer. They're not allowed to play soccer. It's not good for them. So separate women's associations were formed. And whilst the Australian Women's Association was quite fledgling from that 74 through to the 80s, one of the most significant things that happened was the international game between Australia and New Zealand in 1979. It's regarded as the first A internationals, even though there was a national team selected at a national championship the year before, and that team went to Taiwan in 78. This game in Sydney that I was privileged to go to by chance, we, we heard about this match that's going to be played at Seymour Shore. Some friends and I jumped in a car and we went to Sydney to see our first international women's game. And I was kind of hooked on this ever since. I became uh, a state team manager in 1980. And in fact, I was in the first ACT representative team as a player, but I didn't really like the competitive nature and I didn't really like the, let's call it the vibe within the team as a player. I found a niche as a manager, as a, as a leader in a different way. And so I managed the ACT representative team and it was when we went to Brisbane in 1982 that I met people like Elaine Watson and Betty Hall from Victoria and a whole host of other key figures who had been behind the development of the game um, in the late 70s and the early 80s. And talking to people like Elaine and Betty and others gave me more inspiration to get involved in the game from a management um, point of view. And then in those early years of the 1980s, um, the Australian government was also looking to professionalise sport, particularly on the back of the uh, Olympic Games in Canada, I think it was in Montreal, where we had done very poorly. They wanted to professionalise sport. So there were grants available to employ full-time um, professional staff. And it was in 1986, I, well, in 1985, I helped the association get one of those grants. I was based in Canberra. I knew the sort of grants process. I got a grant. And then in 1986, I was actually appointed as full-time National Executive Director of Australian Women's Soccer. And so we'd kind of gone from, you know, really volunteer administration to something that we were trying to take to a professional, uh, a professional level. So from the kitchen table to the board table, so to speak. And with the Australian Women's Soccer Association and a full-time employee, me, <laughs> with a typewriter and a landline telephone, uh, we quickly embarked on, a, on a, a, a pathway with a strategic plan, with a, a growth mindset that we could do anything. The problem was we were still beholden to the Soccer Association, the Australian Soccer Association or Australian Football Association as it is now particularly because they had the key to the FIFA door. And FIFA only recognised one national association per country. So we were kind of holding hands with Soccer Australia, but not really in the tent with Soccer Australia. Um, but international competition really started to pick up as well, Michael, in the early 1980s. And it's quite bizarre that, you know, in our first 10 years of competition, from say 79 through to 90, we played New Zealand something like 13 times. But in the 80s, our competition started to spread to China, where China was starting to develop its own women's teams. They hosted a tournament in a place called Xi'an, where they had four women's teams and invited others to come and participate. 
And then, of course, they hosted the Pilot World Cup in 1988. Let's talk um, about the Pilot World Cup because, I mean, we're on the eve of the 2023 FIFA Women's World Cup Australia-New Zealand, but uh, it's incredible to think that in 1988 was the first time FIFA it wasn't even a World Cup, it was a pilot event. Can you talk to us about that, your involvement in that, and also um, how Australia got its uh, place? Well, there had been um, some countries like Mexico and Italy hosting world tournaments um, before this, but they weren't necessarily FIFA uh, supported. And we also had the Chinese Taipei Association, Taiwan, um, hosting world invitational tournaments. And there's a little bit of geopolitics going on here with Taiwan having hosted these World Invitational Tournaments in in 78 and 84 and 87, and then China comes in and says, well, we're going to do something bigger and better. And China was given the opportunity through FIFA to host a pilot World Cup to see if if women would be ready for the real thing, if they would be uh, competitive enough to be on the full world stage with FIFA support. And I'd been to Taiwan as national team manager in 84 and in 87. I'd met a number of key leaders from various countries, including Norway and Sweden and the USA. And we sort of quietly lobbied to have this pilot, well, have a World Cup. Um, And this is at a time when we're writing letters to each other. We we didn't have the beauty of emails or or, um, social media or anything like that. It was letters that we wrote to FIFA, letters that we wrote to each other, and we would try and see each other at tournaments, as I said, like the 87 tournament. And then when FIFA said, okay, you've made your case, we'll have a pilot World Cup, or they called it a championship um, for the M&M's Cup, I think it was. Um, And I think the success of the 88 tournament was such that FIFA could not ignore the fact that women deserved and warranted and were ready for their own um, FIFA-endorsed World Cup, which of course happened in 91. Australia got an invitation to that uh, 88 tournament, much to the displeasure of our New Zealand sisters across the Tasman. Um, I'm not quite sure how it came about, whether it was just that we were a bigger country, maybe more progressed, Maybe there were people within both Soccer Australia and the Australian Women's Association putting pressure on them, but it was a significant, a significant event. And I clearly remember Janine Reddington scoring a goal um, against uh, against Brazil in that first FIFA endorsed tournament in 1988. Um, terrific! We beat Brazil in our first game. Absolutely, we uh, we've seen some great historic vision of that over time. Um, it's uh, it should be far better known that a vision it uh, sits alongside some of the, the great historic vision of any Australian sport. Uh, to be frank, and uh, perhaps it will be in the fullness of time. Um, Nineteen ninety one, that World Cup. We're we're now into the nineties, of course, and and your own career, uh, Women's Sport Australia, Australian Sports Commission, University of Canberra. Um, you've gone from uh, you know a pseudo part timer, but with a full time work ethic. Uh, uh, lots of, of milestones have already been ticked along the way. The World Cups or passed um, and uh, the uh, entry into the Olympic Games is on the horizon. Talk to us about that period. Well, they're all kind of intertwined, Rob. I mean, uh, uh, talk about the vision and the visibility of the game. We ha- it's so popular now because we can see it, we can touch it, we can feel it. In those days, I was struggling to get funding to actually buy VHS tapes of the games from 1988 and bring those tapes back to be shared with the media. Now, yes, we see that little highlight of Janine Riddington playing and scoring that goal, but it was it was tough to get any kind of vision. And then, of course, with the World Cup in 91, we were bitterly dis- disappointed with the fact that we didn't qualify because we lost to New Zealand on goal difference. And, you know, I mentioned the number of times we'd played New Zealand in the, you know, the 12 years before that, and we lost to New Zealand. But I went to the World Cup as a representative of Australian Women's Soccer and, and the ABC. And again, we were talking, I had the opportunity to talk to a lot of different people and to continue the campaign for more opportunities for women to play. And part of that, especially from an Australian point of view, was to get Olympic Games status. With Olympic Games status, there's more funding available through the Australian government. Uh, and it was kind of coincidental that in 1993, 
the International Olympic Committee announced that women's soccer would be included on the program for the 96 Olympic Games in Atlanta. And it was also announced in the same week that Australia would host the, the 2000 Olympic Games in Sydney. Now that was huge news because it meant that there would be an injection of funding into the sport, probably from 95 onwards. We ended up having a full-time scholarship program for our female players at the AIS, something we'd been also campaigning for for some time. Uh, it meant that we had the establishment of national training centres around the country so that that network of state institutes of sport, academies of sport with, with women's programs involved in those CIS-SAS uh, programs and and things kind of took off because we not only had those programs uh, and full-time opportunities for the players it meant we had a full-time coach in the appointment of Tom Samani um, and other staff that came in through sports science and um, uh, management high performance manager with somebody like Joe Joe Fernandez um, who is I think another person you might want to talk to she's the most highest uh, qualified football administrator in this country having been to men's world cups women's world cups as as match commissioners etc just to detour there a little bit but the olympic Games status um, provided a major boost to women's football um, that was uh, uh, almost unbelievable and from then on from that 96 olympics which of course we didn't qualify for because the first Olympic Games and the next iteration uh, only took the quarterfinalists from the previous World Cup. So you had to make the World Cup, then you had to make the quarterfinals. But having Olympic Games at home in 2000 meant that we were going to be in as the host country and we were going to have funding under the gold medal plan to ensure that the team did as, as well as possible. So there was major changes in the governance and the management and the structure around the women's game that were inconceivable before that um, Olympic Games status. But still not a pile of money. So one of the uh, the moments that the Matildas first uh, appear in the, the broader public consciousness is, uh, of course, uh, the infamous nude calendar. So the Matildas have played in the 1999 World Cup. Uh, they're preparing for the home Olympics. I remember it well. I, I, I went to the Sydney Football Stadium and watched the Matildas play Honduras uh, uh, amongst a, a, a lot of great memories of that period. But uh, but there just wasn't a, a lot of money around. I, I, I quote uh, Katrina Boyd uh, um, ahead of uh, that photo shoot at the AIS. Uh, we wanted to rock the boat, uh, but there was no money and they needed to to you know, to, to work, to train, and they needed money just to survive. So, um, so these are proud, independent women who are on their way up. We I, I use the word infamous because in a, a different world, an equal world, that calendar wouldn't have been necessary. But at the time, um, they deemed and made choices that it was. So, um, so I, I don't want to dismiss it out of hand as something that was a a, a milestone in the evolution of the Matildas. Uh, what, what's your view on it, uh, Heather, and 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 what that period uh, looked like in in um, in the the evolution of of the uh, of the game for women in this country? Yeah, look, it's a fascinating period of time, Rod, because if we go back. To to 95, the name of the Matildas came about through a competition run by SBS. You know, prior to that, they'd been called Female soccer, Socceroos, the Soccerettes, the Soccer Bells, um, different names. And so this competition actually gave them the name Matildas, which I think is the most um, important brand of a, of a sporting team in Australia. It's now an iconic, well-known brand. But from 95 to 99, from that 95 Sweden World Cup in Sweden to um, the next World Cup in USA, the Matildas still didn't get any traction. And in many cases, some players were doing it tough financially. They were still having to pay to play, uh, even though there were athletes at the AIS on, um, on scholarship. And then I think the, the, some of the players got so frustrated with the lack of attention and media coverage that they they wanted to do something different and this was on the back of other nude calendars that were being done 
via people like Jane Fleming and the athletics calendar, you might recall, and the photographic uh, magazine, um, was it Blue or something like that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when the, when the proposal came to the board of Australian Women's Soccer to do this calendar, and I was on the board at the time, I was against it. I am not a believer in using sex to sell a brand or an image, but the players were so intent on wanting to do it that the board said, okay, let's make sure there are some parameters around the way in which the um, the f- photography is done and nobody under 18 should be involved, etc. Interestingly, one of the players who was under 18 is Alicia Ferguson, who's now quite a high-profile person, and it was she was 17 going on 18. And it was her mother that said, if Alicia wants to be in the calendar, she'll be in the calendar. And, of course, nobody really expected the calendar calendar to be so successful in terms of promoting the brand, which was the main point, and raising money for the team. Unfortunately, the fundraising aspect of it wasn't as successful, and I would dare to suggest that, in fact, the calendar and legal issues associated with the calendar led to the demise of Australian women's soccer two and a half years later when they went into premature liquidation. There was a lot of legal issues around the second run of the calendar because it was branded the Olympic edition. And I don't think, well, I know there was no, there there was not the appropriate permission to use Olympic. Um, There were also issues with the company, the publishing company, Um, And a number of players felt burnt by the fact that they hadn't received funding for it. But there's no doubt that the calendar put the Matildas name and brand, not just on a national map, but on a world map. And if you see the footage of the the launch of the calendar in Sydney, there was standing room only in this particular venue. And, and of course, um, it's now stood the test of time. Often we get asked, are you going to do a second calendar? Fortunately, we don't have to go down that path. Well, we're still talking about the calendar, H, so uh, it obviously had its impact, didn't it? Um, let's go into the, the 2000s now, and it's the big time for you. Um, talk about um, the Crawford Report. I've got three questions about the 2000s. The first one is about the Crawford Report. Um, obviously, it's a earthquake in the game of football more generally. Um, people like me are tuned into it because of the, um, the obvious impact that it will have administratively in the men's game. But what did the Crawford Report do for the women's game? Well, again, Michael, if we go back a little bit, I think football basically limped through the last part of the 90s with the Sydney Olympics being the big golden orb that everybody was looking forward to um, experiencing. Soccer Australia was in massive financial trouble. Australian women's soccer was doing its best with the resource that it had. There'd been a pile of reports into the management and structure of the game in Australia years before that. Few people were able to actually implement any recommendations from those reports. And after the Olympic Games in 2000, when everybody took a sigh of relief, but also took a closer look at what was happening within the Football Association, the Soccer Association, there was big trouble. They were financially broke. There was governance and management issues. And there was a lot of uh, what the Crawford Report identified, cronyism, nepotism, um, and a shambles of a governance structure. So with the support of the federal government and state governments, um, Crawford set about to implement a review into the management, the structure and the governance of the sport in Australia. And one of the key recommendations out of 57, I think, that impacted women's soccer. And it was something that we knew was coming for the previous 10 years, but nobody knew how to make this happen, was the integration of the women's associations with the parent body of the state federation, the men's federation, and also with Soccer Australia. And there it was finally in black and white amongst all the other recommendations in the Crawford report that where there is more than one association in each state, those associations shall form an integrated body or they will amalgamate. And as I said, we all knew that that was kind of on the cards, but nobody knew how to make it happen. 
Uh, and even then with the recommendations in the Crawford report, it still wasn't clear how to make it happen. But through the state governments and the federal government, there was a little bit of carrot and stick approach that if you didn't start the process of amalgamation, then the funding would be impacted, funding at state level and, of course, funding at national level as well. And so in 2003, we see this report released. But prior to that, Australian women's soccer from early 2000 or late 2000 it was, had started in earnest to integrate with the soccer association at the time, the Australian Soccer Association. There was a charter of agreement on the table for two years with promises that that um, we would be not just holding hands, we might be at the hugging stage, we would be in the tent with Soccer Australia and nothing eventuated because they were dealing with their own issues. And as I mentioned before, unbeknownst to the board of Australian Women's Soccer, we also had some background issues affecting the finances that finally led to the winding up of the association in July 2002, prior to the release of the Crawford Report. And the women's associations at that time, there were only four state women's associations. The other five had, I guess, dissolved or moved into the state men's federations. Um, but then when Australian women's soccer collapsed in July 2002, we had no parent body. So Queensland, ACT, South Australia and WA really had no choice but to look at that integration process uh, with their state men's federation. Heather, um, during this time, you take on the role of uh, CEO at Capital Football. Mm. And uh, I think one of the great legacies of your time as CEO of Capital Football is Canberra United, who um, made such a strong commitment to the fledgling national competition of all of the states. And it still stands the test of time. Canberra United, in its own um, in its own way, has been a significant contributor to the development of the national women's football leagues, i.e. the W League and now the A-League women. So tell us about um, the establishment of Canberra and the fabulous times that you had there, in particular yeah. the championships and, uh, and really, you know, flying the flag for um, the National League for Women in Australia. Well, yes, Michael, I was appointed um, rather surprisingly, I think, to a number of people as CEO of what was the ACT Soccer Federation at the time in 2004. <laughs> rather ironically, my first task was to forge that integration of the Men's Association Soccer Canberra with Women's Soccer Canberra, ACT Futsal and the referees. It took us two and a bit years to make that happen. But one of the things I was determined to do was to not throw out the whole women's association don't throw the baby out with the bathwater but to refresh the bathwater and make the women's game as strong as possible whilst also building the men's game because it was in a bit of turmoil as well bringing in the referees uh, bringing in futsal uh, building this little tournament that we have now called the kanga cup um, it's just finished in canberra with something like nearly 300 teams we built that up but at the same time uh, the new Football Federation Australia was looking to revive the women's league. There had been a strong women's league during the 90s, especially uh, as a vital component to providing high-level competition for the players going into the Olympic Games. And so we had Canberra Eclipse in the women's league, which was the precursor to the W League. And I remember when the FA released its report into the structure and the I guess, the management of this new women's league, it was going to be based on the men's league. The A-League had been up and running for two years. And so A-League teams would get a women's team. And what that meant for Canberra was the possibility of being left out completely, despite the fact that we'd been very competitive and very successful in the previous um, uh, National Soccer League. We had produced a high number of uh, players for national teams from... Um, Sasha Wainwright and uh, Julie Murray, and I could name a lot of them. So I basically uh, went to the Football Federation with full support of the Board of um, uh, Capital Football at the time and said, 
we want to have a women's team, we will take responsibility for the management and the finances, etc., of the team. And remember, this is at a time in the first years of the W League that it was the state federations that had large responsibility for the women's teams. It wasn't a Brisbane Roar or an Adelaide United. It was Queensland football and South Australian football. And they were just branded with the A-League brands, weren't they? They were branded with the A-League brands. And so my argument was that there's no, uh, I think it might have been Auckland at the time, or was it Wellington that was in the men's league by then? We would take the place of that New Zealand team. So they would have the eight or the seven, the seven Australian based teams plus Canberra United. And so with the support of the board, as I said, of Capital Football, we were able to say to Football Australia, we will do this. <laughs> then, of course, when we got the licence, it was a licence that was held by Football Federation Australia with a tripartite, tripartite agreement that ACT Academy of Sport would be involved and Capital Football, and we had an independent chairperson in Senator Kate Lundy. That slowly changed over the years. But I think it was... Um, uh, a major kind of boost to Canberra to have a team in the National League. We'd previously had the, the Canberra Cosmos, of course, in the men's league, and we had a, a Metros in the youth league. Um, but of course, Michael, it wasn't without its. I wasn't without criticism because I was often accused of not doing enough to get a men's team in the A League. And my argument was, well, FA hasn't given us a license, and I was running the Canberra United women's team on a shoestring budget with great support from the ACT government and some key sponsors of around about 250,000, 300,000 in those early years, compared to maybe 5 million that would be required to run a men's team. But Cambria United has stood the test of time. It was hugely successful. I was the first CEO to bring in foreign coaches, such as Yitka Klimkova, who took Cambria United through her first season undefeated. So we were an undefeated club before Melbourne City went undefeated. Um, and, of course, then we brought in um, other coaches such as Liz Nicholson and Ray Dower and, uh, and the rest is history. So we, we've tried to provide through Cambria United uh, an opportunity for the best players to be part of the club, foreign and local, and, and people like the stalwarts. For at one stage there we had 10 or 11 players that were returning every year, including Lydia Williams, Ellie Brush, Caitlin Munoz, Sally Shippard. You know, there was this core group of loyal, dedicated players that made Cambria United successful on the field. And then behind the scenes, there was the staff of Capital Football making it all tick nicely. We had great um, support from sponsors, etc. Um, I'm a little bit worried about its future right now. Um, there's uncertainty over you know, what will happen if and when there is a men's team coming into the Canberra environment. Um, there's questions over the capacity for capital football to continue to uh, fund it to the same extent as it has been um, and to get sponsors and things like that. But I'm very proud of, of what we achieved through, through Canberra United, um, the opportunities that it created, the crowd support, the venue that we had. We were the most consistent club in terms of our venue at McKellar Park. We weren't, as Yitka said to me in the first year, we were, we, were, we were a bit like gypsies when it came to training venues. Playing in the summer time presents all sorts of problems for our football code. There are not many venues that are available um, on, in a training landscape particularly. So we needed to find a base for the team and we got that at the AIS and, and then other things sort of um, developed from there. And we now know that ultimately in in the years to come, not too far distant future, there will eventually be that men's A-League uh, in the uh, team in the next expansion. But we're moving into the this this period of the 2000s and, you know, your career as an administrator uh, is, is well and truly established. Uh, you're attending World Cups uh, as a guest of FIFA and speaking at women's football symposiums. Uh, um, by the mid-2000s, uh, uh, you, you take a step back from your role at... Uh, at uh, um, Capital football and and hand the the baton over and 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 work with the transition. So you're well and truly embedded uh, in in the the new world of of the 
the merged football picture in Australia. And um, and in 2018, you're elected to the board of football Australia. It's a landslide victory at the time. And uh, um, and and I know I'm sort of fast forwarding through a lot of elements we could do multiple chapters of this uh, podcast, Heather, but uh, but ultimately ultimately uh, we, we land at uh, um, at a, a, a series of events and a period of time that had you embroiled in in one of the biggest controversies in Australian sport, uh, let alone at the time, and and that was of course the uh, the sacking of, of Alan Stajic, and uh, uh, that controversy occurred at the very same time where you diagnosed with endometrial cancer and uh, and you're beginning chemotherapy and. Uh, and so this is a personal crisis as, w- as well as one in your professional career. It's been well documented and we don't intend to, to trawl through the entrails of uh, the, uh, the entire picture again. But from a personal point of view, uh, uh, do you have memories that, uh, um, that perhaps are regrets of, of some of the things that happened at the time and wish things might have gone another way? Well, this was a really interesting time in, in 2018. I was quite happily retired on the Sunshine Coast, having moved here a few years before. I, I had been part of a, a group with women on side to see uh, governance reform within Football Australia through the Congress Review Working Committee, Rob. You might be aware of you know, the fact that the AGM in 2018 was significant in that it was the first time there was competition for a place on the board of Football Federation Australia. Prior to that, under the leadership of Sir Frank Lowy, you know, there was the same number of candidates for the same number of positions. But with the work that was done through the Congress Review Working um, Party, there was a requirement that the new board would have a gender representation of 40-40-20, meaning 40% women, 40% men, 20% um, either. And I was asked by the PFA to... Uh, accept the nomination to stand for the board. I'm a great advocate for um, walking the talk and I'd walked the talk. I'd said that we need more women in governance. We need more women in leadership. So I accepted that nomination. And as you said, I I was elected in a landslide um, victory, highest number of votes. What followed from there, though, was something that I couldn't anticipate. And probably the timing wasn't right for me, Rob. I was around the time that I was elected to the board, I was diagnosed with grade four endometrial cancer. And this was a serious uh, situation. I required immediate um, hysterectomy and then I went into chemotherapy, radiotherapy. The the treatment regime was pretty significant and severe um, if anybody has been through um, cancer treatment. And early on in that, I think it was at the end of 2018, the board made a unanimous decision to terminate the previous coach. And I was part of that decision, but I was not the key person in the decision making. And things kind of went from bad to worse for me because I got embroiled in something that I felt was unfair. Um, It was a nasty uh, situation where myself and others were accused of trying to orchestrate the demise of that former coach. And I can't say too much more about it because there's confidentiality agreements, but I will say it was a unanimous decision by the full board. And then things became so brutal for me in terms of the public comment and also my own uh, treatment regime for can- for cancer that I needed to step away. And even that decision to step away, to take a break for a short time, brought with it all sorts of um, comment and consternation uh, as to why. Nobody ever really thought maybe she just needs to have a break because she's got cancer. Um, but it was it was fairly brutal. But I have to put aside, dare I say, the crap that I endured in 2019 in particular. And then I returned to the board after doing a mea culpa at the end of 2019. I had a great time on the board in 2020. I think I made a terrific contribution in many ways. And then another situation where certain people felt I had transgressed again and I needed to be removed from the board. So not only do I have a credit of being the first person to be elected as a deputy chair of FA, 
I'm also credited with being the first person to be removed from the board of FA for what I felt was uh, a scapegoating um, situation, um, but one that I don't regret fighting for, Rob. I could have resigned very earlier on in that piece, but I stood up for what I felt was the right thing to do. I was not going to be intimidated. I was not going to be bullied into submission. I stood up and did my best with support from a very, very close-knit um, group of people. And in the end, I lost the vote by a couple of, or well, one person who didn't vote, a couple of people who abstained. Again, I think through some undue pressure, but um, I don't regret that, uh, what I did um, in terms of trying to maintain my position on the board. And I'm quite relieved, I have to say, to no longer be on the board. It's hard work. It's time consuming. There's no payment for it. If people think you get paid to make decisions and be on the board of Football Australia, they're never to think again. Yeah, life can be brutal at times, Heather, and uh, and um, your your track record over over uh, you know four decades um, certainly uh, uh, you know stands to your reputation overall. And um, and as a, a person who's worked in the media for thirty plus years myself, and who watched and read and listened and uh, and uh, and was uh, as a keen of observer as the whole thing is possible there are clearly two sides to this story and um and during that period of time uh, there's no question about it that uh, uh that uh, imbroglio that that, that uh, was uh, uh launched and you were in, in the middle of and personal attacks um were, uh, were were well beyond the point of what was reasonable yeah thanks robert look this is the first time that i've spoken about this um and I'm pleased that I'm speaking to you and Michael about it because, I, I, you know, I have felt that I've been bullied into silence. I have to be very careful about what I say. I, I walked away from social media because, um, you know, it, was, it wasn't a pleasant place to be. Um, I'm now back. But I'm enjoying my time with women on side. I'm mentoring people. I've got a mentoring group that uh, is just giving me great inspiration and hope for the future. And, of course... Not very far away, we're hosting the World Cup. And, uh, well, Heather, cute. Heather, let me uh, just uh, jump in for a moment. And obviously, the uh, we'll leave the cut and thrust and the brutality of um, Australian football politics behind now for the rest of this little discussion, uh, um, because we've it's been much documented uh, just how brutal football politics is in Australia over many decades. But just I want to end asking you for a personal reflection before Rob winds up uh, this fantastic discussion we've had. But um, for those people that have been listening to this podcast right from the very beginning, you have, you are a person that's been at the very beginning of the journey of women's football in Australia. And I just want you to reflect on what it means to you personally that after that journey, um, in the twilight years of your involvement in the game, you were going to witness um, the World Cup in Australia. And the Matildas are going to be one of the main people at the show. And we have a great expectation that they will do very, very well and go deep into the tournament. But what does it mean to Heather Reid to see the World Cup on our shores? Well, it, it, it certainly means a great deal. I'm, I'm full of pride. I'm full of... Um, anticipation for the Matildas doing well. I've had the privilege of working with so many fine players over those 40 years, from the time I first saw the 79ers play in Sydney to going away with the team in 84. Um, all I can say, Michael, is hashtag who would have thought? Who would have thought we would be here now in this moment? And for me personally, after all of the trials and tribulations and the, the battles as well as the joys and the, 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 the great love of the game that I have, I, I just I get goosebumps. And I, I think of being at the first game of the Olympics in 2000. It wasn't in Sydney. It was in Canberra at Canberra Stadium the day before um, the opening ceremony in Sydney and I was there with my dear mother and looking around the stadium bursting with pride as well to say we did it this is a collective effort 
And who, again, who would have thought that the Matildas would kick off the Sydney Olympics in 2000? And who would have thought the Matildas would be playing a game against France with, what, 40-odd thousand people and an opening game in Sydney when they play the Republic of Ireland with over 80,000 people? All the naysayers can disappear as far as I'm concerned. All the people that said this is not a game for women should hang their heads in shame because this is a game for everybody and women and girls have just as much right to enjoy this game at whatever level they want in whatever capacity and to realise their potential through the world game like no other sport can offer in this country. Heather, yeah, beautifully said. Um, I, I was doing as Michael was um, some homework in, in the lead up to this and um, and do a deep dive into somebody's career who has uh, has contributed so much and has had so much success and, and so much of it um, in, in their own personal time um, uh, uh, that uh, that wasn't financially rewarded as so many other careers are. You know, you, you do pick up a few battle scars along the way. And, uh, um, and I read uh, a line that uh, scars are proof that we've survived the injuries, healed and become better. And, um, and we hope um, that we speak of that metaphorically for you in terms of the, the difficult times and, uh, and also quite literally in so far as your, your battle with cancer is concerned and, uh, um, and, and a couple of blokes here talking to you. That's a bit of an irony about women's football, but uh, uh, Michael led me along the way. Um, uh, and, uh, and one thing we've always tried to do on our podcast is, uh, um, is advance the cause of, of women's football as best we can. But uh, uh, we've uh, done a, a very small amount compared to uh, to your four decades of effort so enjoy that world cup just wear that green and gold scarf uh cheer on the matildas and and look fair dinkum who knows i mean this could be amazing i mean i'm i keep on whinging to edge that i can't get tickets for the matildas canberra game down here in melbourne i've been on that website 200 times i'm going to lots of other games but that's the one i can't get a ticket to um so you enjoy it i'm just going to say um i'm lucky to be alive i'm lucky to be relatively healthy and mm-hmm. I'm going to enjoy every single minute mm-hmm. of this World Cup. As I said, it's my seventh World Cup. Nobody in Australia has been to seven women's World Cups. I'm incredibly thrilled about Lydia Williams, a Canberra player, mm-hmm. somebody that I've worked very closely with making a sixth World Cup. And I think of people like her and the early pioneers that did it tough. Mm-hmm. Um, they did it really tough. Um, and I'm going to sit back and hopefully enjoy a glass of champagne with some of those people and, and as you say, cheer on the Matildas, wear the green and gold and do what I can because I'm still here and I'm very happy about that. Michael, did you want to say farewell before we sign off? I just um, really enjoyed the discussion. I hope people uh, got an insight into uh, one of the pioneers of women's football in Australia. And um, I hope, Heather, you have a wonderful time at the World Cup. I know you're going to... I don't know how many games you're going to. How many, how many games are you going to? 11. 11 games. You've done well to get tickets for 11 games. So um, enjoy it, um, revel in it, and go Matildas. Thank you very much, guys. Very much appreciated the conversation. Not at all, Heather Reid. Uh, we hope you uh, out there listening have enjoyed this uh, edition of, of Box to Box Offside with uh, Heather Reid as our, our very special guest ahead of the Women's World Cup just days away as we speak. And Heather, if it wasn't for her, there wouldn't be uh, the uh, the World Cup that we have, uh, uh, let alone the World Cup on home soil, sharing it with New Zealand, of course. Please tell your friends, subscribe to Box to Box wherever you get your podcast. Tweet us at Box to Box NTS and follow us on Twitter as uh, we will be sharing this show as, as much as we can on all of our social platforms. Make sure you like us on Facebook as well. And join us next week when we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.